For the week of Wednesday, August 8th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Coxlow. This week, we assess the one-year anniversary of the deadly violence in Charlottesville with a panel of state leaders from Black Lives Matter Seattle King County, the Muslim Association of Puget Sound, and the Anti-Defamation League Pacific Northwest. In the words of Black Lives Matter board member Makita Hope Critchlow, we all have a role to play in addressing systemic racism in our society. We have to decide that we're going to be better citizens and look out for each other and decide that we are not okay with the way that our policy is going. You know, we have to vote that way too, but on an individual level, we have to just protect each other, protect our friends, family, and citizens as Americans. We have to step up to the plate. We also check in with Indivisible Washington's 8th District Research Team member Jim Austin for this week's Calls to Action. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Saturday marks the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, which resulted in violence and the death of Heather Heyer after a group of white nationalists carrying tiki torches showed up near the campus of University of Virginia to protest the removal of a Confederate statue. And as we survey and process what has occurred in the wake of those events over the last year, I thought it would be informative to get some perspective from some local leaders here in Washington. And so I have invited Makita Hope Critchlow. She is a board member with Black Lives Matter Seattle. Makita, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you for inviting me and having me on. Also joining us is our friend Anila Afzali. She is founder and executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network with the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. Hello, Anila. Hello there, Stefan. Thank you for having me back. And also Mary Cypers, regional director for the Anti-Defamation League Pacific Northwest. Hello, Mary. Hi, thank you so much for having me as well. Well, welcome to you all. And I, you know, I just want to start by getting some of your thoughts uh, here at the one year mark. So Trump has absolutely emboldened racism and hate groups. And we will definitely get to him in a moment because he really is such a he's an unavoidable figure in all of this. But just generally speaking, how have you viewed the trajectory of race relations since Charlottesville? Has it been consistently bad? Have there have there been any areas of hope? Uh, Makita, Hope Critchwell, let's start with you. Absolutely. I don't think that it has been, you know, unequivocally bad. However, I think that there are there are, you know, rays of hope, right? For instance, like uh, just a couple weeks ago, we had a rally here in Seattle well, in SeaTac, uh, right, to protest against the essentially kidnapped and a holding of and separation of families at our border. Mm. And there was a ton of people there. And I believe it was 10,000. Yeah, exactly. There was a ton of people there. And I got to one of the other members of our board was actually able to speak. So I got to be on the back end near the stage. So it was just amazing to see how many people we're there. And so even though there are, you know, a lot of hate crimes going on, we've seen 200 percent of an increase here in the city of Seattle in the last two years. But there also is um, an outpouring of love and support from people who have decided that by no means will they stand silently when these things happen and have decided to be active allies and support their brothers and sisters of color. So while we have seen you know, a lot of police brutality and a lot of other things, particularly in the political arena, we've seen, you know, almost a flashback to 1955 and 1964, right? But we also have seen, um, and just an outpouring of love and support, like I've said. We just have seen people say, you know, what, that's not who we are, that's not who we want to be, and we'll do what we have to do to make sure that that's not um, who we become. And I think that that's probably the I, I can't think of a better word than silver lining, but that doesn't feel like the, that doesn't feel like a big enough phrase. But it's a very positive light, so I don't feel um, disheartened or 
upset. I think we're moving in the right direction. It's better to be able to see these things for what they are, and that way we can act accordingly. Well, you know, you talk about issues of being uh, an ally, and that's something that I, I really want to, to get to uh, in just a couple of moments. But uh, Anil F. Sally, I want to bring you in because I know that um, you deal quite a bit with uh, with immigrant issues, and uh, Makita just mentioned the protests that happened down at the SeaTac Detention Center, and so maybe that's a good jumping-off point. Do you see any any areas of hope o- over the last year since Charlottesville? Uh, sir, I definitely agree with Makita that there are a lot of areas of hope, uh, the unity, the coming together, and certainly that uh, protest over the gathering, the rally over at SeaTac was a wonderful example. Uh, uh, just the, the number of people who showed up um, and the number of new people who had not previously been engaged on issues of immigration or on issues in general, just to see the kind of activism, uh, the uh, the way I describe it is sort of the overwhelming acts of individual love and kindness and unity that far outnumber in my, you know, in my heart and mind, they far outnumber the individual instances of hate. However, the way I see race relations since since Charlottesville a year ago is that we almost have these two strands. And these two strands, like we as individuals who do want to promote love and unity, have to be far more vocal than the other strand. And that other strand includes people, you know, uh, using, even weaponizing the calling of police on our our black sisters and brothers, um, the increase in hate crimes against Muslims, for instance, against those who are perceived as Muslim, for instance, the attacks, uh, the vandalism against mosques and synagogues, and so much more. So this is also increasing at the same time that we do have the positivity. And I, t- I tend to be an optimist and focus on the positive, uh, like it sounds like Makita is as well. Uh, so I agree <laughs> that I agree that that's where we should keep our focus, but we really can't lose sight of the other strength. And it's why it's so critical for us to be so vocal and so active and passionate in their er- in this area, uh, because it's more important now than ever, at least in my lifetime. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, Mary Cypers, we'll bring you in. Um, I know that the ADL tracks hate groups here in the United States, and I'm wondering, has there been a noticeable uptick in their numbers since Charlottesville? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with the sentiments that both Anila and Nikita mentioned before. And, you know, say from an ADL vantage point, we have a center on extremism where we have experts and investigators who track hate groups throughout the country in the Pacific Northwest. And we also track local incidents in Seattle. We definitely think that there, you know, we see that white supremacist groups are more emboldened than they've ever been before. Groups that were previously really on the fringes of society are really out there. They're public, they're confident, and they're very proud about the hatred, the hateful vitriol that they're spreading. So I definitely think we are seeing white supremacists more active than ever in new ways. Um, so I think the challenges are changing a lot with some of their tactics and we're having to respond. Um, but we definitely are seeing that not only are white supremacist groups emboldened and out there and spreading their hate, through um, campus um, recruitment, through flyering in the community, through spreading hateful messages over highway overpasses. But a lot of times this is really translating into incidents of violence that we're seeing in the community with hate incidents and hate crimes against minorities. So it's a unique environment we find ourselves in. And I agree with you know both of the great women on this um, podcast that we need to be more vigilant and more um, 
active than ever to counter these hateful forces. Yeah, well, I mean, you've all talked about ways that that we need to be pushing back, and that's kind of what I want to unpack next, because uh, I think there is some difference of opinion about how to resist, how to best resist these groups. So, for example, last Saturday, there were demonstrations in Portland by uh, two hate groups, the Vancouver-based uh, Patriot Prayer and the so-called chauvinist group, the Proud Boys. Uh, and officials had said that prior to this, they were afraid that the violence in Portland was going to be worse than Charlottesville. Uh, in the end, police used flash grenades and pepper spray, and they put an end to what they called a, quote, civil disturbance. I believe there were four arrests, uh, and that was between the hate groups and the counter-protesters. But it ultimately did not end up escalating like Charlottesville. But let's talk about what the best way is to push back when these hate groups come out in public and demonstrate. And the reason why I ask this is because uh, I wonder if counter-protesters give these groups sort of the validation and the media attention that they're looking for, because often you you will see that their numbers are far smaller than the counter-protesters who show up. And so when they come out in public, uh, Makita, what are your thoughts on the best way to push back against these groups? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the person and the personality, and quite frankly, on the temperament of the person who's considering counter-protesting or otherwise responding to that kind of um, violent protest um, in person. I think that as an individual, we have to understand what our temperament looks like. And the point of these hate groups is to rile up those of the you know, peaceful counter-protest and get them to engage in the same kind of behavior that they're engaging in. That's why they show up with you know, um, all kinds of protective gear on and bats and things like that. They will also, quite frankly, always show up with other weapons because that's pretty much, well, not only is it their right, but they are allowed while counter-protesters typically are not because counter-protesters typically are black and brown. Um, And so what I would say really and truly is if you decide to show up in person, then um, your style needs to be that of our, you know, fearless leader, Martin Luther King, you have to be a person who can show up and nonviolently protest and counter to that because when you get riled up or when you get sucked into that same kind of violent group mentality because they will spew hateful words and it, they, they will hurt because they do. But if you end up being as violent as they are, you will also get arrested. And that only just shows them that, you know, it, it, it proves their own personal point that we are like them and we are not. And so if you want to counter protest, my advice or to whoever, you know, is considering that is to be able to be mentally prepared, be at peace and be able to show up with your friends or your brothers and your sisters and counter protest and don't engage with the other side. Right. Engage with people who don't know what's going on, you know, invite people who want to understand and who are also able to nonviolently protest, because if we get sucked into that same whirlwind of you know, violence and anger and hate. So it's very hard not to when you see what you will see at these protests. Um, I personally am somebody who I have a temper. So you will, un- it will be very unlikely for you to see me at a counter protest. But I know that about myself. So I do what I can behind the scenes. Right? I will help build signs for those who want to go. I will help in terms of like events and informing others about what they need to know and where they need to vote and where they need to show up. But I know that my place is by no means on that front line. So I think that it's something that you have to understand about yourself as a person. And then if you are not somebody who can show up and stay nonviolent, then recognize that and see where you can contribute with, um, you know, your local community organized. And how can you, even if it's just donating money, that's something that you can do that absolutely helps 
fuel the community organizations that will fight back against these um, hate groups. So I think it's just an individual decision. Well, Anil, I will ask you, what about the, the media attention that these groups seem to thrive on? Because as I said, their numbers tend to be far smaller when they show up in public for these these demonstrations. And so when counter-protesters come out, are they in some ways giving them the, the media event that they're, they're looking for? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And it's something that we struggled with actually last year uh, when Act for America, which is the largest anti-Muslim hate group, when they organize a national day of action against Islam in our country, uh, including here in Seattle. And that was one of the questions we struggled with. And at the end, we decided to have a counter protest. And I think it really does depend on each individual circumstance and situation. And as Makita pointed out, each individual who's going to show up. And one of the things that we strongly emphasize is making sure that people who do show up in counter-protests are absolutely sort of nonviolent and do have positive messaging as opposed to showing up just to attack or demonize the other side. But you're right that this is a decision we have to consider every time. And I think it was important at that time with the Act for America rallies because they were happening nationwide, because it was the beginning of some of these uh, large protests that some of these groups were doing, I think it was important to show a counter-response. And we outnumbered them, you know, at least 10 to 1 in terms of the counter-protesters. And then also the uh, soon thereafter, uh, when Patriots Prayer uh, and Proud Boys, which are the same groups coming this Saturday to Seattle, when they did did their rally right after Charlottesville, uh, I remember standing there arm in arm with a bunch of faith leaders um, and sort of singing hymns and and songs together as we're standing in front of police and as, uh, you know, all of this is is happening with these protesters and counter-protesters. So I think it's an individual decision. I agree with Makita that you have to have the right temperament if you're going to show up, because if you are going to respond in violence, in anger, you're only fueling sort of the, the some of these groups that want that. They want that kind of reaction uh, from the other side. And in terms of the media perspective, uh, you're right that there are instances like this one on Saturday, for example, the Patriots Prayer and Proud Boys coming to Seattle, where I personally will not be there. And it's because I don't want to give or feed that media attention that they are craving, which is what they want, of course. Um, Some people will decide to show up anyways. And I agree with Makita, again, make sure you contain your your own ego and emotions, as I've described it, and make sure you're there for the cause and the community. And part of what you should do if you are going to show up ever at any of these events is make sure it's nonviolent, make sure you have the right messaging and keep it as positive as possible. And then also to uh, provide info sheets or action sheets or other information uh, and make sure you have the right messenger sharing that information so that it's not just you're showing up for the sake of showing up and, and you know getting out your own emotions, but rather there's some benefit that comes out of that. But again, I think you have to decide on each individual case. Uh, and for some cases like this one on Saturday, I would say just stay away from them. They are armed. They want violence. They've in fact uh, pr- provoked violence at times, as we saw at the rally last year with the Act for America groups. Um, and one additional point that I'll add too is to make sure that the people who are in sort of an immediate vicinity of danger uh, uh, that they are protected. Like, for example, I believe it was last week when some of these groups uh, protested over at the ICE uh, uh, offices, and it was important to make sure that people who were showing up, families who were wanting to visit their families in detention, in detention, that they were protected from some of these groups. So I would be more in favor of a small group of the right messengers with the right message showing up rather than a large 
counter protests. Well, you know, there are groups that do uh, avowedly engage in violent pushback against these these hate groups, the uh, the anti-fascist or so-called Antifa groups, and, and their rationale is uh, that Nazis should be fought uh, against. And I, I'm wondering, Mary, what, what do you make of the anti-fascist or, or so-called Antifa groups? Yeah, I mean, I think to Anila's earlier point, I do think it depends on the circumstance as to the right tactic that people should take. But certainly we encourage nonviolence and think there are so many constructive ways that people can, you know, challenge, but also channel their energy into doing positive things in the community to counter hateful actions and hateful groups. So as you did mention, Antifa is a group that has, of course, been, um, you know, in the news a lot lately, especially with um, the rally in Portland. They're very active in the Pacific Northwest. They are basically um, a group that's kind of a loose affiliation of different individuals, and they arrive to be counter-protesters when there are white supremacist groups and racist groups. You know, I think the current political climate is really challenging, and the chances of violent confrontations at protests and rallies because of Antifa and white supremacist groups, it's just much more likely when a lot of these groups come into play. You know, we at ADL do um, you know, feel like the type of violence that they engage in is problematic. And we really feel like it's challenging because white supremacists really try to um, display this kind of victimhood narrative. Um, and it could be useful for recruiting purposes. So we think, um, you know, it is a challenge and we don't want people to be engaging with violence with these hateful groups. And we want to instead challenge people to think of constructive and positive ways we can be using our frustration and, um, you know, consternation into ways that will make the community more positive and unified. Yeah. Well, I mean, you bring up the, the term victimhood, and I, I think that it's uh, sort of a hallmark of uh, Trump's style to take what is essentially the dominant paradigm in society and convince them that they are being victimized uh, somehow. And so let's talk about Trump and all this, because he's absolutely enabled and empowered these hate groups. It's undeniable. And in fact, uh, after his remarks in the wake of Charlottesville about how there were, quote, uh, very fine people on both sides, uh, a lot of white supremacists, including David Duke, said that they felt actively supported at that point by Trump. Um, Politico's Ann Carney wrote recently that the lack of consequences for Trump after Charlottesville has definitely emboldened him on the issue of race. And uh, I think we may have seen that play out with his actions around separating immigrant families uh, at the border. And so it begs the question, aside from voting, how should we best be responding to Trump's what I think is just in many cases just overt racism? We certainly can't ignore it. Makita, what are your thoughts? Um, I think racism has, well, not I think, we all know that racism has a lot of different levels, right? There's individual levels of racism, then we talk about systemic racism and institutionalized racism a lot, and I think that um, what Donald Trump is kind of, what he's enforcing is institutionalized and systemic racism, obviously, because he's doing that through policy when he started with the Muslim ban, and now, like you just said, uh, separating families at the border, and in terms of voting, that's how we uh, fight against large-scale systemic and institutionalized racism and oppression. But as an individual, there's a lot more things that you can do um, on a day-to-day basis to fight against that. And I think that the number one way that you can fight against racism and oppression at home or within in your community is based on conversation. And I think that people need to 
fight against being uncomfortable talking about race because we've gotten to a space where we can't avoid it. Uh, I think we were talking yesterday, talking about how uh, politics used to be very, you know, dog whistle the way that we talk about it. We can't really do that anymore. And what we have to do is be brave and be courageous and step up to the plate when it's in time to talk to your family member that likes to say racist things. We have a coworker that says things that are off color, but thinks that they're jokes. It's our job as people who are um, more enlightened or more able and have uh, the gift of gab rather to uh, educate those around us and encourage other people to call out things in the most respectful way that we can. But a lot of the times you hear people say, oh, well, you know, I didn't know or I didn't realize. And at this point in time, that's no longer an excuse that's acceptable for me. And it shouldn't be an excuse for any, it shouldn't be an acceptable excuse for anyone around us because we see what's happening. We see that these, you know, uh, seemingly very small or innocuous, you know, words or actions or jokes have a very real snowball effect. And so what I would say is talk to your friends, you talk to your family, you talk to your kids and let them know like, hey, you see this language, this is unacceptable for us and here's why. And when you see someone talking to your, you know, your friends like that, or you see somebody being bullied, even that in and of itself is a way to show that this is what we don't stand up for. We stand up for our friends, we advocate for others because that then leads to positive behavior and that teaches people and not just kids, but adults, even everybody can learn at this point. There's that. I don't believe that people are, you know, too set in their ways to change. I think that when we do our best to meet people where they are and enlighten them on how they can do better, then they're able to be better. And so I think that at baseline, it's having conversations and challenging negative action and saying, here's, here's why you're wrong. And here's why this is wrong. And here's how you we should move forward and here's how you ask questions better or I'm happy to talk to you about that in a different way. That way you can understand this and move forward and then you spread that to your friends and your communities. I think individually we have to decide that we're going to be better citizens and look out for each other and decide that we are not okay with the way that our policy is going and we have, you know, we have to vote that way too. But on an individual level, we have to just protect each other, protect our friends, family, and citizens of Americans. We have to step up to the plate. Yeah, so you're saying really ultimately that uh, as the old saw goes, that the, the political is the personal, and then it really starts uh, on, a, on a one-on-one basis. And, you know, you bring up the, the issue of uh, institutional or structural racism, and I think it's fair to point out at this point that Trump is a symptom, really, and, and not the disease. I mean, racism has mm-hmm. been around since the founding of this country uh, in slavery. It's Absolutely. in our founding documents. It's, it's, it's basically baked into our DNA. And, you know, the the institutional structural racism is far more covert than what these hate groups engage in. Um, Makita, I know that back in February, Black Lives Matter Seattle met with King County Executive uh, Dow Constantine to address institutional racism in county government and services. Uh, Can you talk about that just very briefly, how that went and how you see that playing out currently? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It was actually a pretty positive conversation and there was a lot that came from that and so um black lives matter king county uh asked for a very very specific things right uh, asked the king county executive office uh to for instance uh put a halt to the mani- mandatory inquest of police involved in deaths in king county and uh we've asked that the king county executive's office look into vacating uh, marijuana requests or <laughs> arrests, excuse me, not requests, marijuana convictions, um, ending cash bail for nonviolent crimes. So we asked for very specific things to be um, taken under consideration and then actively acted upon. 
Um, and so there's a lot of different things that we've asked for, and we have uh, followed up with the King County Executive's Office to ensure that there are actually, it's no longer just lip service, that uh, decisions are being made and actions are being taken. Um, and so we are, you know, positively looking out to the rest of this year and in going into 2019. And so there's not a lot of things that I can speak on as facts, but there are positive conversations and positive policy changes um, that are on the horizon. So I have a positive outlook, and I believe that King, Seattle King County Black Lives Matter has a positive outlook for the changes that will be made in the city. Well, Anila, I want to bring you into this discussion about structural racism, too, uh, because I know that because you deal with uh, you know immigrant rights, you deal with uh, Muslim American rights, how, how do you see all of that sort of fitting in together with the the framework of structural racism? Sure. So uh, it's definitely all connected. And that's one of the messages that I constantly am, am sort of talking about when I go out and speak, which is the interconnectedness of these various forms of injustice uh, and racism. You know, you, you mentioned Trump's racism. Uh, I, I see that as part of his general general character shortcomings, let's say. He's a very crass individual. Uh, and he's That's been putting it very by... nicely, Anila. <laughs> uh, I, I try to be nice. <laughs> uh, he's been emboldened also by the Supreme Court's ruling on the Muslim ban, among yep. other things. So there's no question about that. But I try to stay less focused and less concerned about him individually and his sort of perspectives on certain things, uh, but really focus on how he uses those perspectives, those attitudes to further institutional uh, racism, systemic racism in our country. Uh, and that, as, as you mentioned, it's a symptom of a larger problem. And what I really find problematic is the way he is using that, which has been done historically as well, we know. The whole concept of scapegoating has been very effective, but he's been using that to get people to be angry, to get riled up, and then wrongly direct their anger at certain groups of people, whether they're immigrants, whether they're people of color, you know, rather than the real sources of their discontent. And what I love is what Reverend William Barber said, where he said that, you know, all of this is driven by a fear of the browning and blackening of this nation's demographics and the possibility that black and brown, uh, this black and brown growing demographic is going to align with progressive whites to build a kind of fusion movement. And we were seeing the, some of that happening. And that is a real concern to some of these sort of America first types. Uh, and I think certainly with the Muslim ban and the, the Supreme Court's ruling on that, we're in law and in the court, uh, in the courtroom and our system of justice and on the books, the law books. Now we have this order that really uh, allows for institutionalized uh, anti-Muslim sentiment in our country at that level. And we do have sort of these policies with immigration. We do have these anti-Muslim policies. All of this is part of this larger anti-Black, anti-Brown sentiment that certain groups of people benefit from, and that's why they further that. Uh, and I agree that the response to that is education. It is building movements. It is doing what these groups fear, which is bringing together groups of different backgrounds of different, you know, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, gender, sexuality, whatever it may be, building the movements and challenging both the implicit bias within ourselves and also within our communities, as well as the systemic racism that exists. Uh, certainly, as Makita said, caring for each other and being there for each other and, and helping hold each other accountable as well, but really building that movement and being on the ground, being organized, and also being strategic 
public in the actions that we take. Uh, and part of this is uh, making sure we know who our allies are and working well with them to affect real change. Well, you know, uh, you speak of allies, and I am a straight, white, cisgendered male, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how to be a better ally. And, and I know that I'm not the only one because I've had these discussions. How can people like me, Makita, be a more effective ally in all of this? I think that um, kind of what I was saying earlier and exactly what Amila was saying just now is participating and helping organize, right? Uh, it's unfortunate that the world we live in uh, is that if white people don't get involved, almost nothing will change. But that's what, that's the way it is, right? White people are, take conversations about race better from other white people. Easy, they take being challenged better from other white people. And so sometimes it's even as small as delivering a message when uh, the space is not inviting or safe or welcome for people of color, Muslims or immigrants, and getting the message across for people who are unable to get the message across for themselves. And so I think it takes looking at yourself as an individual and understanding, can I be an ally by donating money to causes that I believe in? Or can I donate my uh, social clout is the best word that I can use, like social capital, social clout, or these other Or our privilege, ultimately. Right, your privilege, precisely. Can I lend that to these organizations in a way that is useful because there are, you know, power differences that exist, and how can I use mine to uplift and empower those who don't necessarily have the same access to power and privilege that I do? And so I think that it's as small as standing up for somebody when you see an injustice at a store, right? Like at a Starbucks, like a lot of people here, a lot of people uh, did when that incident happened. They used their privilege the best way they could to stand up and say that's not what we want to happen. We don't allow that, that for that kind of thing to happen. While they were ignored, they used their privilege the best way that they could have done in that situation. So it can be as individual and as small as advocating for someone who's being ignored or rights are being trampled on, all the way up to what Amila was saying was helping with organizing, donating your money, donating your time, donating your privilege and your power to causes that need it because social capital is something that white people simply have more of and it's something that we need in order to get our messages across. It's something that we need in order to uh, bring justice and equality for all in this country. It's something that we just frankly need whether we like it or not. And so I think that, you know, figuring out how you can best be of use and not simply calling yourself an ally is probably the biggest thing. People like to say that they're an ally because their beliefs align with a group or align with the message of, say, a Black Lives Matter. Um, but then do very little when it's time to act. That is not an active ally. And so I would like to challenge anybody who calls themselves an ally to think about what am I actually doing besides simply saying to my friends that, yeah, I totally believe Black Lives Matter. But when things happen, do you speak up or are you silent? Do you donate your time? Do you show up to things when we need you to be there? If you don't, figure out how you can and challenge yourself and others who call themselves allies to really truly show up and be allies because we need you to be. Anila, I know that you did a workshop uh, that was based on how we can be better allies to immigrants. And actually, one of the things that you said uh, right off the bat was uh, don't refer to people as illegal. Uh, talk about them in, in different different language. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the points that you made at that workshop. Sure. So one of the, uh, the the workshop that I was leading there at that uh, uh, activists and allies forum was on messaging, and I believe messaging is an important part of being an ally because messaging really does matter. Uh, otherwise, people may end up saying things that 
unintentionally hurts the groups that they are that they may be trying to help. Uh, and the way this happens is that oftentimes allies, uh, when they're wanting to stand in solidarity or support, they may uh, reinforce negative stereotypes and reinforce negative frameworks even of, of our opponents. Uh, and the example you gave, undocumented versus illegal, is certainly one of them. There are many others. And the reason that that's an important one is because, you know, people have researched uh, these different words, and they have researched certain phrases that are effective in invoking fear, in reinforcing a certain framework and a certain narrative about groups, whether it's immigrants, whether it's Muslims, whether it's our Black sisters and brothers, uh, just different groups have been put in these kinds of boxes. And when, when our allies repeat that box, repeat that oppressive framework, it in fact reinforces it and it accepts it. Uh, so one of the important points that I talk to people about is know the talking points of the groups that you are trying to help and learn how to engage in positive reframing uh, and also recognize that in this day and age, you know, especially with the alternative facts that we have and everything, that facts and statistics do not change hearts and minds. Yeah. Like I have all the statistics I can present, for instance, about who the actual source of violence and threat is in our country. And it doesn't look like Muslims, I'll tell you that. But unfortunately, that's not what's in people's minds. So even though the statistics may show one thing, uh, people's fears and emotions are based on a different narrative that is fed to them through media, through entertainment, through Hollywood, Trump. Through, yeah. <laughs> through, exactly, through our elected officials. And it, and it goes well beyond mm -hmm. Trump. It's on the uh, left as well as the right, at least with Muslims. So that, that, that is the reality that we are facing. And when we live in that kind of context uh, where facts really don't matter sometimes, we have to learn how to change hearts and minds. And the way you do that is actually through personal stories and connections and reframing to positive frameworks, to positive messaging, as opposed to reinforcing the negative frameworks and engaging in some of these, you know, debates that people have. Uh, and, and I also emphasize the importance of bringing in values, especially aspirational values and creating commonalities with different groups and always keeping in mind that when you speak, you're not speaking just to the person that you're directly addressing. Oftentimes you are speaking to all the people in the vicinity, all the people listening in, all the people reading on social media, and oftentimes the person you might directly be responding to is far less important in that conversation because you, you probably will not change that person's heart and mind if they are sort of dead set on being against immigrants or being against Muslims or, or people of color. But you could potentially influence people in the center or who are a little bit uh, less, less set in their ways. And that's somebody um, who and, would be reading those comments. Exactly. Somebody reading or somebody listening in. And the other important point that I emphasized is how we have to learn to reach beyond our own echo chamber. Oftentimes, people, even activists and, and allies, uh, often just sort of talk to each other within sort of echo chambers. And we don't reach the people that we need to bring along to affect the kind of change that we need to see in our country. And Makita was right that we need to reach sort of more white people and get them involved, uh, just given the demographics in our country. And and uh, it's important to be able to reach them. And that's where messaging matters more, more so than ever. So it's important to recognize that different people play different roles and recognize how to use messaging in a positive way. And I'll also add that, uh, you know, when we're talking about how to be effective allies, one of the best things that you can do, Stefan, and many other uh, of our white sisters and brothers can do is you guys can be, besides, besides what Makita talked about, about, you know, using your platform and your privilege and giving financial 
financially or, or giving of your time or stepping up in other ways, uh, one of the most important things you guys can do is really be ambassadors and go out and share the message and know that you know there are many people who will never walk into a mosque, who will never talk to somebody who looks like me, but they could listen to you perhaps, Stefan, and you have a platform, of course, but even out in your day-to-day -day interactions and the network that every single individual has, you know, you have access to people that I may never have access to. And many of our white sisters and brothers, for instance, they have Trump supporters in their own extended families. Um, and they can potentially reach, you know, through personal narrative, through positive personal stories that can really be effective as opposed to, you know, reinforcing negative stereotypes. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I, I will also say, as somebody who has lived in uh, big cities for most of his adult life, that associations are just enormously important. It is very, very difficult to generalize about somebody uh, when you know people personally, individually. Uh, and I think, you know, those sorts of, of relationships are really important for people to try to foster. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, I would like to close uh, our discussion by having each of you talk a little bit about the work that your group is doing here in the state to combat hate and racism, because I've spoken with, with each of you about this, and I would love for you to share. Uh, Mary, let's, let's start with you. What, what are some of the things that the ADL is doing to combat hate and racism here in Washington? Sure. Um, so as a little background, the Anti-Defamation League has been around for over 100 years. So we have a really long history of fighting hate, both at a national and international level and in local communities across the country. And our ethos around battling hate is really that in order um, for us to successfully and effectively combat the forces of hate, it really has to be on behalf of all communities. It can't just be on behalf of the Jewish communities or other minority communities that might experience bias or discrimination, but it really has to be a unified approach. And that's always how we approach our work. Um, we also believe that hate is something that's learned, but it also can be unlearned. And it's something that we do holistically in a number of ways here in the Pacific Northwest and in our local Seattle community. We do it in a couple of ways. I think Anila brought up the issue of education, which is so important. And I think, Makita, to your point, too, it really has to start young. Um, when you think about racist jokes or, you know, little things that kids say, these are things that snowball over time and become normalized and accepted and can even grow more severe. So one of the pieces that we're really proud of that we do here in the Pacific Northwest is a program that we have called No Place for Hate, and we bring it at no cost to schools that are elementary through high school. And we have difficult conversations with students who become leaders on this program about how to tackle bias and racism and bullying and any of the issues that kids are facing, you know, in schools across our region. And they become ambassadors for this program. We provide them with on-site training. Um, they complete No Place for Hate projects, which can vary from a friendship bench on a playground so kids aren't bullied to, um, you know, different projects that talk about their, um, you know, diverse values and, and what they um, learn at home from their families and, and how kids can share that 
from one to the other. So it is a program we're really proud of and they get a banner at the end of the year. And it's an ongoing project that, you know, hate incidents aren't only something that need to be dealt with when they happen, but it's something proactive that schools and entire communities can do. And we've heard from so many people, not only about the importance of these programs for students, but also for parents and teachers, you know, as we all struggle with issues of bias and discrimination in today's world. So education is a huge piece of what we do. And we're really proud that this year um, that we've received state funding to bring this project to eight new schools in Washington state, including four east of the mountains. And I think, you know, to everybody's point, you know, while we might live in more of a progressive city in Seattle, we do have a really politically diverse state. And it's really important that we're able to bring these kinds of educational programs to more people to create more positive change and, um, you know, share our values of inclusivity and respect and diversity. So we also do a lot of law enforcement training on the issues of hate crimes and implicit bias. And as we track white supremacist activity and hate groups in our region, we share that information <clears throat> directly with law enforcement. So they're apprised of their activities, especially because a lot of these groups can be violent and have violent tendencies. And a big piece of our work is also civil rights advocacy. It's so crucial that we mobilize, we organize, we're educated about the issues that are at stake, whether it's anti-discrimination laws, immigration reform, all of the important implications and, and policies that people alluded to on this podcast today. So whether it's fighting um, you know, a travel ban in the court, going to Olympia to organize and to advocate for a policy or doing something on the local level, that's a huge piece of what we do as well. And then I'll say the fourth is that when people in the community experience an incident of racism or discrimination or bias, we at the ADL are here and our you know, phone lines are open and we have um, attorneys on staff who can help us review cases and provide guidance to people as to how they should um, proceed forward. We know that many people are hesitant to contact law enforcement directly. And we at the ADL, you know, we have a lot of expertise in hate incidents and hate crimes. And we are here if members of the community of all backgrounds need us. So we really believe in tackling hate and racism and, you know, bias in many, many ways. And those are a few of the core ways that we do that in the community here. Well, uh, Anil, I, I want to bring you uh, in to talk a little bit about what you do, because you actually were brought in to found uh, the American Muslim Empowerment Network as part of the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. Uh, so talk briefly about uh, what the work is that you do through Amen with Maps. Sure. Uh, so the work that uh, Amen is involved in is uh, building coalitions and helping mobilize friends and allies to take concrete action against hate, against uh, bigotry, whether it's Islamophobia or other forms of uh, hate and discrimination, uh, as well as engaging communities, engaging the American Muslim community uh, and really helping uh, engage different communities to take effective action and empower those communities to do so in the work that they do. And one way that I describe the work that I do is I try to fulfill the justice mandate that exists in Islam. Uh, I'm also, just so you know, on the board of the Faith Action Network and on the steering committee of the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. So I work with a lot of faith leaders. I work with a lot of immigrant rights activists and other community leaders uh, on sort of the intersection and the inter 
and the interconnectedness of these various issues. Uh, and in terms of education, I think it's really important. Uh, we've, we've heard it uh, said many times throughout this, uh, uh, this panel today, which is to make sure that we help educate our fellow Americans about certain issues, whether it's about Islamophobia, whether it's about their Muslim neighbors, whether it's about immigration, whether it's about racism generally. Uh, and I'm doing a Women in Islam series, a three-part series uh, to help really fight back against the misinformation that is propagated by this uh, anti-Muslim uh, hate industry, this Islamophobia industry, because they love using women's issues as a way to try to demonize Islam and Muslims. I'm also involved in a Faith Over Fear roadshow uh, where I go across the state of Washington with Pastor Terry Kylo, especially to smaller, more conservative towns, and really try to help build understanding and expose uh, this Islamophobia industry. I'm working with Kara Washington and Weber Shanwick on a campaign of sort of getting to know your neighbors to overcome some of the hate and bias and misinformation. Uh, I'm working with a lot of local activists on a, a forum, a training that we're going to hold on specifically Islamophobia like we did on immigration at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. As part of the week of action, we did a, 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 a half-day uh, training session on immigration issues uh, on July 7th, and we're going to do another one on September 22nd. And, on you know, I highly recommend attending that for everybody listening, if you can make it, uh, and we will provide information about that uh, on the website at indivisiblepodcast.org. That would be wonderful, yes. So these are also ways people can get involved. There's a lot of interfaith work happening. There's a lot of inter, you know, different group work, coalition work happening, and I really highly encourage people to get involved. Um, and I will also say that, uh, you know, uh, Miri talked about the training that they do of law enforcement uh, by the ADL, uh, and, and I really want to talk further with Miri, perhaps offline, about the uh, devastating impact that some of that training has on Muslims, on black and brown bodies here in Seattle, as well as across the nation. So we really, again, have to be uh, cognizant of the impact that we may have in our own groups, in our own organizations, and the kind of bias that we may be promoting, even when we say we stand against hate uh, and want to stand firm on some of the values that we want all of us to espouse. Well, to be continued offline there. Uh, and uh, Makita, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what Black Lives Matter Seattle uh, is involved with. Uh, is there anything coming up on the horizon? Any events? Absolutely. Um, so Black Lives Matter Seattle King County has uh, rebranded as there was a former Black Lives Matter Seattle group. And so we've been pretty silent and in the shadows as we've gotten incorporated and, you know, made ourselves distinct and um, establish ourselves as the only Black Lives Matter chapter here in Seattle King County. And so what we have coming up, actually, we have an event next week, uh, which is really aligned with where we're going. We try to be as uh, education, as both Amila and Mary have said, education information first. We try to be really strategic about the actions that we take and when we show up. But we also try to make sure that on the opposite end of that, that we do our best to make sure that people are always empowered by information, always know their rights, and always know um, how to best protect themselves. And so next week on August 16th, we actually have a Know Your Rights training for youth, parents, and their guardians. Um, and that is actually at the Hillman City Collaboratory on Rainier here in South Seattle. And so that's what we saw on the horizon. And you can, uh, and I can give you some information that you can put up um, attached to this episode as well. And so like we're talking about needs for allies, and people can show up. 
is that we still need lots of um, volunteers to help with set up and dinner and cleanup. And so you guys can, anybody uh, can email us at info at blacklivesseattle.org if you're interested in volunteering. And that's a good way to get involved. But we really are trying to make sure that people stay informed. So even with uh, the May Day um, protests that happened, we didn't officially show up in terms of a counter protest. So we made a point to send out an, an alert to make sure that people knew what was happening in the area, that they could stay safe, keep their families safe. And we attempt to do the same thing about the Portland um, and not about the Portland protest, about the protest coming up that was in Portland last week and that will be here this Saturday in Seattle. And so we'll put out an alert to make sure, to Amelia's point, that people are safe and that we can make sure we protect members of our community. So we do our best to arm people with information as best as we can, as often as we can. Well, that all sounds great and, and great points to uh, to keep in mind. I want to say thanks to all of you. Makita Hope Critchlow is a board member with Black Lives Matter Seattle King County. Anila F. Sally is founder and executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network with the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. And Mary Cypress is regional director for the Anti-Defamation League Pacific Northwest. I will have links to everything that we talked about here. And there was just a ton of great information uh, at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But to each of you, I just want to say thank you for... Uh, an extraordinary and really enlightening discussion. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And finally, this week, we are joined by our friend Jim Austin of the Indivisible Washington's 8th District Research Team to talk about this week's calls to action. Hello again, Jim. Hey, Stefan. So uh, the real call to action this week, of course, was voting, and I'm sure everybody listening did that. Uh, So the next step is going to be canvassing, and we'll have plenty of information about that in the coming weeks and days ahead. But for now, I want to talk about something that is related to the election. Uh, There is genuine concern among our intelligence community that November's election is going to be interfered with. U.S. intelligence head Dan Coates said that, quote, warning lights are blinking red again. So what is happening on both the national and the state level around this uh, potential crisis? Well, on the national level, uh, you have efforts uh, that have been made in both of the houses of Congress to add some additional funding for election security measures that would be made available to the states. Uh, Last year, Congress appropriated $380 million dollars. Uh, But unfortunately, that's, as one commentator has put it, a 10-cent solution to a $25 problem. Yeah, it kind of seems like peanuts, especially if it's supposed to go to all 50 states. It is. If you look back after the election in 2000, in which George Bush defeated Al Gore. Quote, unquote, uh, yeah. (laughs) And with all of the problems in that election, Congress appropriated something like $1.3 billion Mm. uh, to be made available to the states so that they could upgrade their election equipment. We're now at a spot where a lot of states need that upgrade, even further upgraded equipment to protect themselves against hacking and and other uh, types of intrusion. Uh, And Congress just is not appropriating enough. The states are actually asking for more than the $380 million that's been appropriated. Uh, There have been some efforts in both houses to appropriate an additional $250 million. Those have not been successful as yet. And people simply need to keep the pressure on our elected representatives to support additional election 
security measures when they come up and, and the opportunity arises in Congress. So that's the specific that's call to action here is to call all of our members of Congress and call both of our senators and say that we want more uh, funding appropriated for election security. Correct. Okay. On the state level, the state is – our state is getting about $7.9 million of that $380 million, which it will be using to upgrade its uh, election IT uh, systems. The one thing – and our state is actually ahead of a lot of states in terms of election security. We but have, we use paper ballots We for use one paper thing. ballots, which of course uh, are auditable. But what we don't do as a state is require risk-limiting audits after the fact, which – and risk-limiting audits – Yeah, tell us what that means. Risk-limiting audits are audits uh, of a statistically significant sampling of the election ballots across the state. Uh, to de- to basically to verify that the election results are as uh, that that the in the output matched the input. Let's sure. put it that way. Okay. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, in our state, risk limiting audits are not required. Uh, one of the things people can do it's of course not uh, fruitful right at the moment because the legislature isn't in session. But when we have a new legislature is to put some pressure on our state legislators to mandate risk-limiting audits as a sort of a fail-safe, a a double safety measure to be sure that our election results match uh, what the voters actually cast as ballots. Well, cool. Let's let's put a pin in that for sure, because uh, as I'm going to talk about in the final segment this week, uh, we're going to be going over some election results. And there is a real chance that the Democrats could extend their margins in substantial ways uh, in the November election. And that would definitely be something that I think Democrats would right. be uh, in favor of. I-, I want to talk next about an action aimed at defending our state's farmers and manufacturers from uh, Trump's foreign tariffs, which we've heard uh, a great deal about. And something interesting came up in your research, and that is that Washington is the most trade-dependent state in the nation. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Talk about that a little bit. Well, that's correct. Uh, We are a a major agricultural uh, producer. And a lot of that trade uh, comes from the agricultural sector. Unfortunately, uh, the fallout from the Trump administration's tariffs is going to uh, fall heavily on the backs of farmers and many uh, in many of the farming sectors in our own state. Uh, we're looking at tariffs from Canada, from Mexico, from China, from India, all nations to whom we export a considerable amount of farm products. And the tariffs that are being talked about are, for example, on apples. We're the biggest apple producer in the nation. Cherries, we're the biggest producer of sweet cherries in the nation. Wheat, we're the fourth largest producer of wheat in the nation. Really? Uh, And potatoes, we're the second largest producer of potatoes in the nation. And wine, we're the second largest producer of wine in the nation. Second only to California. That's correct. And so uh, farmers are really going to start feeling the pinch. They're already starting to feel the pinch in terms of their ability to harvest their crops with the efforts that the Trump administration has made to limit the availability of uh, foreign workers, um, migrant workers. So uh, now they get a sort of a double whammy. Uh, It's hard enough for them to find the talent to harvest their crops, and they may not have a market for those crops 
once they're harvested. And so you're seeing uh, people uh, like Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who is the number four Republican in the House and a major Trump supporter, basically twisting herself in knots over this situation and trying to keep her constituents happy while still towing the, the party line. Right. Trump. She's portraying herself as being a person who is against the tariffs that have been uh, enacted, but she's doing nothing right. uh, to prevent the imposition of further tariffs uh, or to undo the tariffs that have already been imposed. Well, so then what can we ask uh, of our elected representatives uh, here in the state as indivisible members? What we can ask them to do is support legislation that has been introduced in Congress that okay. would uh, provide Congress with some additional authority. Uh, Congress is uh, constitutionally has the tariff power. It has delegated that tariff power to uh, the president under Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act in a limited way. The president has the right to impose tariffs when uh, national security is at stake. And it's this national security So that's excuse. a loophole that he's using, basically. He is using that loophole through the Commerce Department to impose the tariffs that uh, that are presently – have recently been imposed. And so there is a piece of legislation, I believe it's S-3013, that would essentially close that loophole, right? Yes, although uh, S – unfortunately, S-3013 looks like it's not going to uh, be successful in reaching uh, a vote in either of the House because both McConnell and Ryan have indicated – Position to it, they Big don't surprise. want to. They yeah. don't want to disclose fissures within the Republican right. Party and and have a dispute with the White House with, with an upcoming election. But there is another uh, bill that just last week was introduced, another bipartisan bill by Senators Portman Jones of Alabama and Ernst, two Republicans, one Democrat, called the uh, Trade Security Act. It doesn't even have a number yet, so far as I can tell. Uh, and what that bill would do is create a bifurcated process where the Defense Department, in consultation with the Commerce Department in the White House, would determine whether a, uh, uh, a given tariff imposed by some other nation constitutes a national security threat. Uh, if that determination is made and the president wishes to impose a tariff, he would do so through the commerce in consultation with the Commerce Department with input from the Commerce Department as to what remedy would be appropriate. And then if a tariff is imposed, Congress would have a period of time to adopt a measure, a resolution disapproving that tariff if it didn't want to see that tariff. So this imposed. is an oversight measure. It is an it's, oversight measure. Okay. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't sound like it's going to be too hard of a sell for our two senators, but I do believe that we should uh, give them a call. Let That's them right. know uh, that we want them to support the Trade Security Act, and we'll have some information on that on the website. Finally, the uh, last call to action this week has to do with the, the administration's efforts to freeze federal fuel efficiency standards, even at the state level. This is a jaw-dropping issue because uh, Trump is pushing rollbacks to levels that even the auto manufacturers themselves aren't in favor of, right? That's correct. Uh, the current standards, uh, which are known as the 2025 program, were actually developed by the federal government in consultation with the auto industry. They were standards that were adopted with the idea in mind that they are uh, attainable standards. Uh, 
the EPA itself estimated that the – and by the way, what they would do is by 2025, they would double the fuel efficiency of cars uh, so that vehicles on average would have a uh, – consumer vehicles on average would have a fuel efficiency of 51.5 miles to the gallon. And, of course, that means cutting in half the fuel consumption mm. of uh, automobiles. What the Trump administration's proposed freeze would do is freeze until 2026 fuel efficiency standards at the 2020 level. The rationale for this, of course, is a nutty one. The rationale was based on just simply ignoring studies that have been done, discounting others, in some cases making up numbers. And it's certainly not anything that the automotive industry has been promoting. Uh, the automotive industry has looked for perhaps a little bit of relaxation, but not what the uh, Trump has gone. Uh, the Trump administration has gone way overboard. On well, I think I think the, the ultimate rationale is Trump looks at a uh, a particular situation uh, on a policy level and thinks, "What would a supervillain do?" That's what I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. yes, and uh, so who wins? Well, the winner in this is a petroleum industry. Right, because people it's, are going to be using more fuel. Yeah, well, in, buying fact, more fuel. in fact, uh, the estimated consequence of this is an additional $600 billion windfall for the petroleum industry. Well, they're poor. <laughs> they, need the, uh, and, they need the extra windfall. And just Jim. think about it. Uh, who is one of the major players? Well, it's the Koch brothers through right. Flint Hill Resources, a refiner and seller of gasoline. The Follow Coke, the money, as uh, uh, the Woodward Coke's, and Bernstein once the said. The Coke spent yeah. $5.7 million uh, uh, in public a public relations effort to support uh, the confirmation of Pruitt as EPA director, and now they're getting their payback. Yeah. Actually, uh, Deep Throat, I believe, was the one who actually said follow the money. So yeah. correction on that. Uh, so what can we do as an action around this? What, what people can do, there is a comment period. We're in it uh, where they can comment on the proposed uh, change in regulatory structure and oppose it. Uh, that's really the only thing that can be done uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, a number of states have already initiated uh, court actions uh, seeking to uh, uh, challenge the, I would imagine Bob action. Ferguson is, is among those. I don't know that our state is. I looked at the list of states and I didn't see us there. We hmm. may not have standing if we have not adopted at the state level a standard as stringent as California. But 16 states have brought an action. 16 states have. They represent something like 43% of the auto market in our nation. And at least 12 states have brought an action seeking to challenge the ability of the Trump administration to preclude the states from adopting their own more stringent standards. All right. Well, I will have a link to that for everybody to uh, check out. Go there. Uh, voice your uh, your opposition to that for sure. Uh, Jim, as always, thanks for all the great information, man. Yeah, you bet. Anytime. And before we go this week, I want to give a quick shout out to our Democratic candidates here in the state because the Democrats put up some really impressive numbers on Tuesday night. Uh, first, while the race in the 8th Congressional District is too close to call on the Democratic side as of this recording, if you add up all the Democratic percentage totals, you get 49% of the vote versus Dino Rossi's 43%. In the 3rd District, Democrat Carolyn Long came within striking distance of Jamie Herrera Butler. And again, if you add up all the Democratic totals, you get 
50% versus Herrera Butler's 40%. And the big news, Democrat Lisa Brown came in almost dead even with the number four Republican in the House, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, out in the fifth CD. I think that all bodes extremely well for November. Let's talk about some of the amazing legislative races around the state. Uh, I'm going to crib a lot of this information from 8th CD Democratic Chair and our friend Joshua Troopin. Uh, as I have noted on this show repeatedly, Democrats got a hell of a lot done in 2018 with a one-vote majority that they had. So increasing their numbers in Olympia would allow for even more to happen in 2019, including, wait for it, becoming the first state in the nation with universal health care. Now, the numbers from Tuesday are preliminary, but right now every state house seat held by a Democrat looks to be safe. On the Senate side, in four Senate races for seats held by Republicans, Democratic candidates got over 50 percent of the vote. And overall, in all seats currently held by Republicans, Democrats got more primary votes in 16 of those races. So in short, if that trend holds, we could potentially be looking at a majority of 66 to 32 in the House and 29 to 20 in the Senate. Now, I don't want to jinx anything, but let's call it just a really good night for Democrats. Oh, and special congratulations to Bill Ramos, Lisa Callen, Emily Randall, Milan Tai, and Jessa Lewis for their amazing performances last night. I also want to say a special thanks to everyone who has been out canvassing and working tirelessly on behalf of these incredible candidates. This does not happen without you guys. So let's rest up those feet because there's going to be plenty more to do before November. Uh, In the meantime, regarding Tuesday's primary, there is quite a bit to be optimistic about. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thanks again to my guests, Makita Hope Critchlow, Anila Afzali, and Mary Cypress. Thanks also to Jim Austin. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.